Many years ago now, I had a conversation with one of my relatives that I don't think I will ever forget. We were talking about the Lord and about the gospel and about salvation, and this man said to me, Brian, I know that Jesus is the only way to be right with God. I know the gospel. I just don't want it. And I know I will end up in hell. I just want to live my life and do what I want to do. One of the reasons why that conversation stuck with me is because it is very rare for someone to admit that he knows that he is headed to hell. Of course, this man has no idea how horrific it is going to be, even if he knows it's going to be bad. But at least he is not deceived to think that he is okay And that he is going to heaven. The sad fact is that there are many people who are deceived or who have deceived themselves into believing that they are going to heaven when in reality they are headed toward hell. How do I know that? Because Jesus said so. In Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, referring to judgment day, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The first word in Matthew 7.22 is the word many. Many people will experience that unspeakable shock. I mean, it's one thing to end up in hell when you knew you were going to end up there. It's another thing to end up in hell when you thought you were going to be in heaven. Jesus said many people will have that experience. There was a man present that day who heard Jesus give that sermon in Matthew 7. He was one of our Lord's disciples, and his name was John. Many years later, he would write a letter that gives basically the same warning. Let's turn together to the book of 1 John, chapter 2, over near the end of the New Testament. Maybe find the book of Revelation and go backwards a little bit. 1 John, chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 6 to give us the full context, but our focus will be verses 3 through 5. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected or has been completed in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. 
The author of this letter, the Apostle John, had had the indescribable privilege of walking with Jesus for over three years. John had watched Jesus minister and heard Jesus preach and heard Jesus teach. To say that John was greatly impacted by Jesus would be a gross understatement. His life was completely transformed. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, John thought about the life of Jesus and meditated on his teaching for over 50 years. At the end of that time, John wrote this letter. This letter distills or sums up much of the teaching of Jesus throughout his three-year teaching ministry. Jesus warned those, repeatedly warned those, who claimed to be saved but really weren't. In fact, he had one such person right in his very midst because Judas Iscariot was never really saved. Judas did not fall away from his salvation. Judas did not lose his salvation. The scripture makes it clear. Jesus repeatedly made it clear that he never really had it. However, he pretended to have it And maybe he even convinced himself that he truly was saved. After all, there are unsaved people who fall into both categories. That is, there are those who do not possess salvation, and they know deep in their hearts that they don't, but they pretend to be a Christian for one reason or another. Maybe they do it to find business contacts or to find a Christian spouse, or to keep their Christian family members off their backs. Whatever the reason, they don't possess salvation, but they pretend they do, even though in their hearts they know they don't. Then there are others who don't possess salvation, but they think they do. Maybe they have been convinced by a religious institution or a religious person, or a religious organization that they are saved, and maybe they have convinced themselves. So it could be external deception, that is, some entity outside of them telling them that they're fine, or it could be self-deception, convincing themselves, but either way, it's deception. This is the group that John is concerned about in verses 3 through 5. He is addressing those who claim to know Christ, but the evidence doesn't back up their claims. John, like his Lord, was very concerned about those who make the claim, but don't have the reality. Notice how he begins this very important warning. Verse 3, he says, Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. The word know is used two times here in this verse, once in the next verse, and again in verse 5. That's four times in three verses. The repetition should get our attention. John uses the word know, K-N-O-W, approximately 40 times in his writing. It was obviously one of his favorite concepts to pass along to others. It was obviously, in his mind, one of the most important concepts to pass along to others. 
Here he says he wants us to know how we can know that we really know the Lord Jesus. This is of utmost importance because in John 17, 3, Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There in John 17, 3, eternal life is tied to knowing God and knowing the Lord Jesus. No wonder John wants us to know how we can know that we really know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, you don't have eternal life. This is life eternal, said Jesus, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the great New Testament definition of salvation. And it comes from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. The word know in that verse means far more than just intellectual knowledge or mental assent. It is the same expression used to describe the sexual intimacy of a husband and a wife. When Mary was told by the angel that she would give birth to Jesus, she said in Luke 1.34, How can this be since I do not know a man? In Matthew 1.24 and 25 it says, Then Joseph took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. In both of those passages, the word know, K-N-O-W, is used to refer to intimacy. And that's the way the word is used in John 17, 3. To know God and to know Jesus Christ is not merely having intellectual knowledge of them. And it doesn't mean to know about them. In James 2.19 it says even the demons have that kind of faith. To know God and to know Jesus Christ means to have an intimate, personal, ongoing, dynamic relationship with them. It does not, hear this, it does not mean to be religious. Jesus made that clear in John 8, 19. He made it clear that you can be devoutly religious and still not know God. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing the Lord Jesus in an intimate, personal, ongoing, dynamic relationship. And here in verse 3, John tells us he wants to make sure that we know how we can know that we really know the Lord Jesus. So what does he say here? Well, you can see exactly what he says. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So is John teaching works salvation in this verse? Is he saying that we can make sure that we are saved by cranking out a life of good works? Is that what he is saying? Not at all. John is not talking about the means of salvation. He is talking about the result of salvation. The difference between those two statements, beloved, is the difference between heaven and hell. If you believe that the way to be saved is by striving to obey God, you will surely miss eternal life. Obedience is not the means of salvation. It is the result of salvation. 
That is, someone who truly does know the Lord will have a longing to obey Him and an interest in obeying Him and a desire to obey Him and a disposition toward obeying Him. This is not something that is self-produced. This is something that is produced by the Holy Spirit of God in the new birth when a person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why John can state this here so unapologetically. This is not something that is humanly produced. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Time and time again, the Scripture tells us that salvation is a transformation. The Holy Spirit of God grants us repentance and grants us saving faith. We are born from above, Scripture says. We are born anew, born again, whichever of those phrases you want to use. Salvation isn't us merely deciding to add some kind of new dimension to our lives. That's not salvation. If that were the case, then John would be talking about a form of works salvation here in verse 3. He would be saying that the way we can know we are saved is by cranking out a life of good works. But that's not what he is saying. John understood that salvation is not addition. It is transformation. When we come to be in Christ, when we come into a relationship with Christ, God changes us. He gives us a new heart that longs to please Him and obey Him. And that is why John can be so certain about this test of salvation. Let me say it this way. God accomplishes the work at the root, and keeping His commandments is the fruit. God accomplishes the work at the root, that is in the heart, and keeping His commandments is the fruit. Now, John is not implying that our obedience will be perfect. He has just said in chapter 1, verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. When the Lord transforms us, He doesn't eradicate the sinful disposition of our flesh. That is something that will be with us and something we will have to battle until we die or until the Lord returns and our bodies are glorified. So John is not talking about perfection here in verse 3. He is talking about direction. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. How can we have confidence that we really know the Lord? Here's the answer. Just look at your life and see if the Lord has changed your heart in such a way that the direction of your life is to obey the Lord. It's that basic. Do you stumble and fall? Yes, we all do. But like Peter, we are graciously restored to the Lord to get back up and continue our walk with Him. That is a description of a true child of God. So John adds the next statement, verse 4. He says, He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him.
This is the flip side of the coin, if you will. The person who makes the claim to know Christ but has no heart for obedience is making a false claim. The person who claims to know Christ but obedience is absent from his or her life is not telling the truth about his standing with Christ. John's wording is very strong because he says that such a person is a liar and the truth is not in him. The writers of the New Testament were very serious about making sure that we understand that just because someone claims to be a Christian doesn't mean it is so. The life needs to back up the claim. In fact, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2. It's back to the left, a little earlier in the New Testament. James says the same thing that John does here, just to reinforce that the writers of the New Testament had this concern or had this burden. James says it in a different way, but he says basically the same thing. Go back to James chapter 2, verse 14. James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Notice that James doesn't say, what does it profit if someone has faith? Notice the wording very carefully. He says, what does it profit if someone says he has faith? The key word in that statement is the word says. What does it profit if someone says he has faith? The individual that James has in mind has a false claim. He claims to have faith. He claims to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. But the evidence in his life of a lack of works proves otherwise. Thus, verse 14 concludes with the statement, Can that faith save him? The New American Standard Bible, the ESV, and the NIV all translate this phrase in that manner. Can that faith save him? James is not asking if faith can save, because the answer is obviously yes. We know from Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. James is not asking if faith can save. He is asking if a faith that lacks results can save. And the answer to that question is no. James has already stated back in chapter 1, verse 18 of his letter, that salvation is a gracious gift from God. I mention this lest we think that James is teaching here a work salvation. It's not work salvation that James has in mind. He's already stated in chapter 1, verse 18, salvation is a gift from God. James believed and taught that salvation is by grace through faith. But, listen to this. As a pastor who had worked with many people, he also knew that there is a kind of faith that is only mental assent to facts, and that is not saving faith. That's the point that James is making in this section of his letter. Just believing the facts of the gospel does not make someone a Christian. Just believing the fact that Jesus died on the cross, Jesus rose again, Jesus ascended to the Father, that does not make someone a Christian. Just believing the facts. 
Merely claiming to be a Christian with your words doesn't mean anything. So James illustrates this point. He says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you, watch this, says, that's his key word, one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Don't miss the repetition of the word says. If a brother is hungry and someone says, be filled, that isn't going to do any good. Just saying it doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't prove anything. In the same way, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, that doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't prove anything. That's the parallel that James is making. Then he draws his conclusion in verse 17. Thus, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That statement is definitely the main point of this passage. It's repeated again in verse 20 and then again in verse 26. James's entire thrust here in this section of his letter is that a faith that doesn't result in works isn't saving faith. Or to say it another way, A faith that doesn't result in a changed life isn't saving faith. John Calvin said it this way, quote, It is faith alone that justifies. But faith that justifies can never be alone. That's what James is saying. So he adds verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith By my works. This should be obvious. Because faith is something that is in a person's heart or in a person's soul, it's impossible to show it apart from works. It's impossible to show your faith apart from external evidence. Let me even state it more clearly. It's impossible to unzip your chest and show someone the faith that's in your heart. How can you do that? You can't. You can't. The only way internal faith can be shown is by external actions or works. That's the point James is making. He is not saying that works produce faith. He is saying faith produces works. Works are an evidence of vital living faith. A faith that doesn't result in a change is nothing more than intellectual assent to certain facts. And that's the point of verse 19. Notice what he says there. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. This is one of the most shocking verses in all the Bible. It is sarcastic. It is abrupt. James says, in essence, you believe in God? Good for you. The demons also believe in God and tremble. According to Jewish belief, the most important statement in Hebrew Bible is Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the cornerstone doctrine of Judaism. 
In fact, if you've ever been around a Jewish home, you'll notice a lot of them have on the sort of the door of their house a little mezuzah, and in it is a scroll rolled up with Deuteronomy 6.4 printed on it. And if it's a devout Jew or even some non-devout Jews, when they go by it, they will touch it and kiss their finger. It is their way to acknowledge and to affirm that this is the greatest statement in Hebrew Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the cornerstone doctrine of Judaism. There is only one true God. According to Jewish thought, that's the most important theological truth someone could affirm. That's what makes this verse, verse 19, even more shocking. James tells us that even the demons affirm that truth. The demons acknowledge that truth. And what James is saying is this, if you claim to have faith in Christ, but it hasn't changed your life, then watch it, because your faith is like the demon's faith. The demons know certain facts. When Jesus was here on the earth, it was not uncommon for a demon or multiple demons to acknowledge the truth about Jesus. For example, in Matthew 8, 29, some demons, a group of demons, called Jesus the Son of God. In Mark 1, 24, a group of uh, demons called Jesus the Holy One of God. In Mark 5, 7, a demon called Him the Son of the Most High God. You see, the demons know the truth. They believe there is one true God. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. But it doesn't impact them in any way except this verse says they tremble. This is the case with many people today. They know the facts of the gospel. They can tell you the facts of the gospel. They've heard it maybe as a child in Sunday school or somewhere along the line. They've picked it up. They know the story. Jesus died, and in our culture we have Good Friday, so they kind of know what that is. Jesus died on the cross. Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. They know the facts of the gospel. Maybe they even know a day of judgment is coming. They believe all of that in their minds. But they aren't willing to surrender their lives to Christ in response. That kind of belief, says James here, is not saving faith. Understand that. That kind of belief is not saving faith. James is really driving his point across with this illustration. He is basically saying, yes, we are saved by faith, but faith is not head knowledge. As Calvin put it, knowledge of God can no more connect a man with God than the sight of the sun can carry him to space. So James repeats his theme in verse 20. Look at what he says. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Dr. Warren Wearsby explained it this way. True saving faith leads to action. Dynamic faith is not intellectual contemplation or emotional consternation. It leads to obedience on the part of the will. And this obedience is not an isolated event. It continues through the whole life. It leads to works, end quote. That's what James is saying. Now he wants to illustrate his point by using the father of faith, Abraham. So he says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? The first thing to understand about this verse 
is the fact that James is not using the word justified in the same way Paul used the word in Romans and Galatians. When Paul used the word justified, he was talking about being declared righteous in the sight of God. When James used the word justified, he is talking about being vindicated as righteous in the eyes of people. Paul was talking about being saved by faith before God or in the eyes of God. James is talking about faith being demonstrated in the eyes of people. That becomes clear in the next couple verses. Verse 22, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Notice that James uses Abraham to prove his point that we are justified by works. But Paul, in Romans 4, uses Abraham to show we're justified by faith. How do we resolve this tension? How do we resolve this apparent contradiction? Here's the answer. When Paul uses Abraham as an example, this is very significant. He points to Genesis 15. To the time when Abraham believed in Yahweh and he was declared righteous. It was credited to him for righteousness. Uh, But when James uses Abraham, he does not point to Genesis 15. He points to Genesis 22. When Abraham offered up his son Isaac, and beloved, catch this, those two events are 30 years apart. 30 years apart. James's point is this. We know Abraham's faith was genuine in Genesis 15 because 30 years later in Genesis 22, he was submissive to God to the point of offering his son. Let me say it more succinctly. James is saying Genesis 22 proves the genuineness of Genesis 15. That is why James uses the word fulfilled here. He is saying that Genesis 22 fills fuller with meaning the statement in Genesis 15, 6 about Abraham being justified before God by faith. Abraham's works were evidence of his faith. And in verse 24, James says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Then, to even further drive home his point, James uses another Old Testament character as an illustration. Look at verse 25. Likewise, he says, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? To what is James referring here? Well, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Joshua, let me just bring you up to speed on how he's using this illustration. In Joshua 2.11... Rahab made this statement to a couple of the Jewish spies. She said this, The Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. That's a pretty good statement. The Lord your God, referring to the Jewish spies, your God is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now the question that comes when we read that statement is this, were those words genuine faith? Or was that just Mental acknowledgement, hey, your God is the God, or was this genuine faith, submission to the true God? And James says this, the fact that she aided the needy messengers, the fact that she put action with her words was evidence that her faith was not just talk, it was authentic trust in the true God. 
So James concludes his argument in verse 26. He says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. A body without a spirit is not a true man. Right? We all understand that. A body without a spirit is not a true man. It's just a corpse. In the same way, faith without works is not true salvation. It's just an empty claim. This is the same thing that John is saying in 1 John 2. Now let's go back to our text there as we begin to wind down. So John and James basically say the same thing. Interesting to note, James may have been the first letter, or at least one of the earliest books of the New Testament written. 1 John, one of the latter books, one of the latest books. So from the beginning of the New Testament to the end of the New Testament, the message is the same. And that is, just claiming to be a Christian does not make someone a Christian. Just saying it doesn't mean it. So John says here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, genuinely, the love of God is perfected or has been completed in him. And by this we know that we are in him. Now that verse, verse 5, adds an interesting element to what John has been saying. This kind of, this obedience that John has been talking about is not a dry, impersonal kind of obedience. Notice that according to verse 5, it is an obedience in the context of a love relationship. The individual who obeys the Lord manifests the fact that the love of God has accomplished its purpose in that person's life. You see, beloved, the goal of God's love Now, the the concept of the love of God is thrown around a lot today in our culture, especially in the Christian community. But let's notice what Scripture says about it. The goal of God's love, according to this verse, is to bring an individual into a life-changing relationship with Him. Therefore, when a person's life is changed from rebellion against God to a life of obeying God... The love of God has accomplished its purpose in that person's life. That's what the love of God purposes to do. And that's what John means by this phrase, the love of God has been perfected in him. Or the, the Greek word translated perfected also means completed or accomplished. When a person's life is changed from rebellion against God to a life of obeying God, The love of God has accomplished its purpose in that person's life. That is the goal of God's love, to make us or to change us from rebels to loving children. Those who love him and obey him. And that is why John adds here at the end of verse 5, By this we know that we are in him. When we see that the love of God has transformed our hearts so that no longer are we rebels, but rather obedient children, that gives us confidence that we belong to God. By this we know that we are in Him. That is John's goal in this little section of his letter. 
He wants us to know how we can know that we truly know Christ. And how's that? Just look at your life and see if the Lord has changed your heart, if the love of God has changed your heart in such a way that the direction of your life is to obey the Lord. It's that basic. Do you stumble? Yes. Do you fall? Yes. We all do. But like Peter, we are graciously restored to the Lord to get back up and continue our walk with Him. So this is a description, beloved, of a true child of God. Not someone who merely claims to be a child of God, or not someone who is deceived into believing he's a child of God, or someone who has deceived himself into believing he's a child of God. This is a description of a true child of God. Someone in whom the love of God has made a radical change from rebellion to loving obedience. That's a true child of God. So let me ask you this morning, are you a true child of God? Don't pass that question off quickly. Are you a true child of God? Have you experienced a life-changing surrender to Jesus Christ? If not, or if there's any question in your mind, surrender to Him today. Surrender to the love of God today. He is in the life-changing business. He changes people from a life of rebellion to a life of loving obedience. Is that your life? Let's bow together as we close this morning. And as you bow your head, I would even encourage you to close your eyes so that you won't be distracted by any movement that is going on around you. Because nothing is more important than what we've talked about this morning. Nothing. Nothing. Jesus said many are going to say to him on judgment day, but Lord, but Lord, and they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Is that you? What are you trusting in for your eternal salvation? Your own goodness, your church membership, your confirmation, your baptism, it's all the wrong stuff. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I ask you this morning, do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Not know about him, not know of him. I'm certainly not asking, are you religious? Do you know God? Maybe you're saying, well, yeah, I, th- I think I do. I, I, I feel like I've surrendered my life to the Lord. I've asked Him to be my Savior. I feel like I know Him. What can, what can give me assurance? By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Look at your life. Has the Lord changed your life so that now, instead of being in rebellion You're living a life of loving obedience to Him. That gives confidence that the Lord has saved you. So if you are not a child of God, if there's any doubt in your mind, surrender to Jesus Christ this very moment. Right where you are seated, in the quietness of your own heart, just say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. 
Come into my life. I want a relationship with you. Change me. Forgive me. Grant me your salvation. Make me the man or woman that you want me to be. And you don't have to say it that way. You don't have to use those words. But from your heart, surrender to Christ and come to know him today. Because this is life eternal. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, thank you that not only have you provided the way for us to know you and provided a way for us to have eternal life, in addition, you want us to know. You don't want there to be doubts in our minds. You don't want us to be plagued by insecurity, questions about where we stand with you, where we are headed for eternity. You don't, you don't want that for us. Your desire is for us to know with absolute certainty with complete confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the work that your grace has accomplished in us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning for anyone here who is truly a child of yours, but maybe has been wrestling with doubts and plagued by questions, and and he or she just needs assurance from your word, from what we've seen this morning, Assurance of what you have accomplished in his or her life as you have changed that person from a rebel to someone who wants to obey you and seeks to obey you. May your Holy Spirit grant the gracious gift of assurance to such a true child of yours. But then, Father, surely in a crowd this size, there are some present who do not belong to you. They are not your children. Maybe they've been deceived by a religious institution or organization or person that they're fine, they're okay because they've gone through confirmation or they've done something else and they're deceived. Or maybe they've deceived themselves. Whatever the case, if they don't truly know you, if they don't truly possess eternal life, but they're deceived, we pray your Holy Spirit would open their eyes, help them to see so that they would let go of their false assurance And truly come to know your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.